The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome back to Represent. We are back in action after a short break last week, and I hope everyone had a nice Thanksgiving holiday, however you celebrated it. Whether you were lucky enough to be surrounded by like-minded family and friends, as I was, or you had to argue with some close-minded folks about the election. I'm sorry for you, and I hope you survived. It's great to return, and we've got a great show for you in which we discuss a particular cultural theme that has been a huge part of my life since childhood, for better and for worse, the world of Disney. Later on in this episode, you'll get to hear me chat with the legendary Floyd Norman, who was the first Black animator to work long-term at Disney when he joined the studio in the 1950s. And we chat about his career and the documentary about his life that came out earlier this year. But before we dig into Disney's past, we're first going to talk about its present by way of Moana, the new musical film inspired by Polynesian mythology. That gorgeous, lively music at the top of the show comes from one of the songs in the film. Moana features the talents of Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and many more people of color. And joining me today, I have a special guest, New York Times and Jazz Times music writer, Nate Chenen, who is also a native Hawaiian... Thanks so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great. And you recently, last week, actually, you wrote about how Moana Disney-fies Poly- Polynesian culture for Slate. And I definitely want to dig into that a lot more as we, we go on. But first, I would just love to hear your personal thoughts about the film aside from all of that. And just like, did you enjoy it? Um, I know you want to take your kids to see the movie. They haven't seen it yet. But do you feel comfortable taking them to see this movie? Well, the first thing I should say is just a, a minor correction. Mm. Um, when you say that I am Native Hawaiian, that's not actually accurate because I am not uh-huh. ethnically Hawaiian. Thank you for that correction. Um, I'm about as Hawaiian as Barack Obama. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe a little more. I spent a little more time uh, uh, in the Hawaiian Islands than he did. But mm-hmm. it's, I, I feel like I am culturally Hawaiian in the sense that I completely grew up immersed in island culture. But it is not my my own heritage. Mm. And you um, were you were there, you grew up there. I was born and raised uh, and I still have a lot of family there. Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, the culture that is presented in this movie is very, very familiar to me, you know, but it's, it comes to me through 
all these layers of mediation, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But to answer your question, I would love to take my daughters to see this movie. They're um, six and three, and they're very excited to see it. Mm -hmm. There's a piece you wrote that touches on this, the idea of this, you know, really strong female hero who is, you know, operating without a love interest, without even the hint of a love interest. You know, she's not even trying to escape a betrothal, which is sort of, you know, your classic um, Disney trope. Uh, So she's just, I think, a really inspiring character. Yeah, I mean, I guess we should give folks a little bit of a background about the film just in general. Essentially, Moana is the daughter of a chief. She is not a princess, as uh, she <laughs> very, very succinctly oh, but, says. Oh, but Maui corrects her. Right, right. <laughs> I think the line is something along the lines of, like, if it, you wear a dress... You know, if, if your daughter's a king and you have an animal sidekick, you're a princess. Yeah. <laughs> biggest... That, I don't know about you. That, that was the biggest laugh line in the in the screening that I was at. Yeah, it was great. It was sort of this... Um, this kickback from all of the the years of Disney princesses that we've had, even with something like Frozen, which is also very progressive in its own way, right. but was still about it did have a love story as a heterosexual love story as its sort of side piece. And both of them were princesses. Right. So, yeah. But and the love story in that case is sort of subverted, and you know you come around to this idea that the sisterly love is the you know the main thing. But it's still in there. It's still there, <laughs> it's still right? There. So this is different in that she's the daughter of a chief, and even from the beginning, her father actually is like, "You are going to become the next chief." There's no. It's just which I thought was really fascinating, right? And so, but he also has. Uh, he has. He's kind of like all these other Disney fathers, like. Uh, King Triton and and others from like Little Mermaid um, who don't want their daughter to explore and go beyond what they know. Right. And and that is their island. And there's an entire opening song about that. Mm-hmm. But she feels the pull of the, the water, the ocean, and the ocean also plays a role in the film as well. I f- it's like the magic carpet of, right. <laughs> of right. this of this movie. It helps her in various different ways. It it um it motivates her to go seek out the now I'm forgetting what the name of that little emblem the the heart of Tefiti the heart of Tefiti right and so there's also this legend going on with Ma- Maui who is based on an actual folklore and could you talk a little bit about Maui uh, the the Wikipedia page for it um it, it describes it as a much darker unsurprisingly a much yeah. darker well it's it's really um it's interesting because so this is the character played by played by Dwayne Johnson, yeah. The Rock, mm-hmm. um, played really entertainingly and engagingly, um, and he's I think the most overt um, instance of sort of Disneyfication of you know of, of a cultural figure because he is this kind of larger than life you know magical and also very very funny comic hero. What's interesting is that Maui. In the the folklore, you know, it's not just one um, native culture that has the the myth of Maui, and he is a figure who, you know, he, a lot of things are attributed to him. You know, he pulled up the Hawaiian Islands with his fish hook, you know, as part of a prank. There's things about you know the discovery of fire and the way that you know the days work. You know, there's just a lot of um, natural phenomena that are attributed to Maui and his exploits. And, you know, generally they're portrayed in a way that he wasn't intending to give us this thing. And it came about as a result of some kind of struggle or trick or, you know, but he's not, as far as I know, he is not, um, 
psychologized in the way that he is in this film. You know, yeah. we're sort of led to understand that, okay, so he's this orphan and he really just wants love and acceptance. And, you know, he did these things to kind of try to curry favor with the humans. And I I don't know enough about, you know, about the Pacific Island um, sort of religious mythology to to be able to say definitively whether that's completely off, mm-hmm. but it didn't ring very true to me. It felt really pat and kind of like a convenient sort of characterization. Yeah. Um, and then the secondary thing, I mean, for many people, it's not the secondary thing, is his f- physical portrayal in the film. There's a lot of really sensitive issues around, um, you know, what Pacific Island communities are going through in terms of obes- obesity and, you know, um, poor access to nutrition. And and so when in early when some early um, images were were shared around the world, there were some um, there were some native groups that said, you know, this is why is Maui, who is, you know, never portrayed in our, um, you know, in our folklore as like like a big fat guy. Like, why does he look so obese, you know, like hippo like? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, you link to that in your piece, actually, through a New York Times piece that sort of mm-hmm. outlines all the different arguments made for and against the fact that he is appears way more heavy um, than the folklore usually suggests. And, you know, it, it was interesting to think about that because, I don't know, when you say that he, he, like, he doesn't necessarily look like the typical superhero, I think, I don't know, I still felt like, I felt that he did, despite being obese. I, I don't know. I, I, I can understand the the um, worries about this because, obviously, when you have something like Disney taking, trying to... Um, portray a culture that it does not usually have ever really endeavored to portray, right. you're going to have those fears. And it, it, there is a real problem with obesity within that culture. Yeah, But at the same time, you know, there's, I don't know, just because you are 300 pounds doesn't mean you're not fit. Well, I don't know if that doesn't mean you're not physically fit, but I know people who can like... Well, he moves incredibly fluidly. In, right. In the, and I think if you watch the movie, and, and that's this is why I think that these complaints, uh, if they have not subsided i think they are subsiding Mm -hmm. because he's not portrayed as you know lazy or you know yeah um, sluggish you know like he's very dynamic he's you know he's very strong you know i I think for a lot of people the only sort of you know pop culture references we have to pacific islander you know native people come through professional sports you know they come through they come through wrestling you know they come through the nfl you know, we see these these soccer teams or these football teams doing the haka, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so this this idea of a kind of um, uber masculinity, um, I think that carried over into the way that they chose to portray uh, Maui in the in the movie. Yeah. And also, now that you mention it, he he does kind of remind me of a football player, like the his body size. Yeah. Like kind of small on the bottom, but then really big on top. Right. And also he just like... It, he also has so much self-esteem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, there's the song he's saying, his, like, his big, you know, never had a friend like me moment. Right. Where he sings, uh, you're welcome. So what can I say except you're welcome for the islands I pull from the sea? He's like, you all should thank me. I'm a demigod for lassoing the sun and, like, making the days longer and all these things. And I, I don't know. I think that adds to... It should add, I think, to some extent, some sort of um, 
counter to the idea that his being obese is a bad thing. Like, because he clearly doesn't, he's, he's totally fine with right, himself. He's right. more than okay with himself. Yeah, there's a lot of vanity in the character, which is played for, you know, for laughs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also a, a little bit, he's he's nakedly self-interested, you know, and so that becomes one of the sort of small points of conflict in the movie, which is where, um, you know, Moana basically needs to win not only his trust, but sort of his investment in the idea of this mission. Yeah. And I don't even think we went into what the mission is exactly. (laughs) So to backtrack a little bit, the mission essentially is that um, at the beginning of the film, the, uh, Moana's people discover that their their food and their their natural resources are being depleted, and so the the solution that she has is, oh, I should go beyond the the reef, and there might be more fish to be found there. Right. And her father is very like, no, we can't do that. It's not safe. There's nothing but danger there. And so she, her grandmother, gives her the um, she tells her about her ancestors and how her ancestors used to be voyagers, right. and they are no longer. And so that inspires her to go after Maui, who apparently is the reason why, at least part of partially the reason why these these um the the reef is i guess considered dangerous because he stole the heart of tafiti and um she basically disappeared right i don't know if we want to right well you're leaving out one thing that i don't think is a spoiler which is you know very early on uh, moana is chosen right she's the chosen one right (laughs) yeah it's like there's, there's this idea of um the water no, chooses the, the her. The ocean. The ocean chooses her. Yeah. And so she's destined for greatness and it's and she is the one who must do this. And there's a little bit of like, you know, Frodo and the ring in there. Yeah. Uh, because she is kind of um she feels the pull of that, uh, but she also is, you know, afraid and and feels the burden of of this, you know, basically being a savior. Yeah. Uh, and there are moments of self doubt and difficulty and, you know, she has to sort of overcome that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to pivot to what you wrote about um, for Slate. And and I, so I guess my first question would be, because you, one of the reasons why I also asked you on is because you've also written in the, uh, for Slate uh, a year ago when Cameron Crowe's movie Aloha came out. Oh boy. Uh, yes. And for folks who don't remember, there is a big controversy about Emma Stone being cast as a, as a Hapa? Yeah, she's yeah. she was she was uh, part Asian, part Native Hawaiian, and and part Caucasian. Yeah, um, despite Emma Stone being none of those things in real life, and also aside from that, the the movie just in a way, I don't know if bastardizes is the right word, but it, it doesn't. It portrays this sense of what you describe as like Hawaiian culture as this very commercialized thing through the lens of white people, right? And so. You've written about these things, and I'd like to know sort of like what are the what are the most common issues that arise whenever the like Pacific Islanders and whenever like Polynesian culture is portrayed on screen? What are the most common issues that arise, and how does Moana either succumb to those things or and or not succumb to those sort of pitfalls? Well, the the first thing I'll say, um, and you know, I think I I think I said this pretty strongly in the piece. It's just that they sidestepped a lot, you know, and and I think we can give the creative team at Disney a lot of credit for putting in like a really serious effort uh, and sort of understanding that they were that they were, you know, 
walking on some perilous territory. Yeah. I did not mention this in, in my piece, and I, I felt bad about it afterwards, but, you know, two of the, I think, five screenwriters on the film uh, are twin brothers, uh, Aaron and Jordan Candell, who actually went to my high school hmm. um, and then went to USC, you know, film and television program. And they were really, I think, a check. You know, they were they were the ones uh, in the writing process who really tried to kind of keep the story, you know, within uh, acceptable parameters in terms of how it engages with, you know, with this culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, you know, extremely important that they had people at the table who who were of that culture. And I, I don't know if the Candells uh, are Native Hawaiian at all, you know, but, you know, for anyone who grows up in Hawaii and has friends who are, you know, Samoan and Tahitian and, you know, and Hawaiian, you know, you just, you understand these things, you know, uh, very naturally, you know, and and you sort of can see what some of these pitfalls are. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, everybody knows historically what Hawaii looks like on screen. I'm going I'm to talk about Hawaii specifically, yeah, um, yeah. even though Moana, you know, makes an effort to sort of broaden this to, you know, basically the entire South Pacific. It's like a tiki orientalism. Um, there's this, you know, sense of sort of the exotic and, you know, you hear the sort of um, the steel guitars and, you know, there's this, um, it's a sort of a, a vestige of the way that the United States came to know um, the Hawaiian Islands, especially, which was, you know, just purely through tourism, you know, and through, um, you know, this this island paradise. Um, and, you know, we've we set up a military base there and we, you know, set up, uh, you know, commercial flights that went there and, you know, our hotel sprang up and, you know, all of this. But it goes further back to, you know, the the territorial days. Um, and it's funny that Moana is and isn't a Disney princess movie because Hawaii is the only place, you know, in American history that actually had princesses, hmm. like real princesses yeah. in the way that we understand them, living in a palace, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is a vestige of, um, you know, uh, missionary and, and Christian contact, you know, and mercantile contact with, you know, um, the, the Hawaiian people. There was a, a long period where the the monarchy was, um, you know, they were groomed to be, you know, part of Christendom, you know, mm-hmm. and and there was a a f- really kind of concerted effort to um, to destroy and deface and and eliminate eradicate all of the traces of the Native Hawaiian religious. Uh, and cultural artifacts because they were now quote unquote civilized. Um, and, you know, that's all we now understand what that process was. Mm. Um, you know, but at the time it, it was just understood as like, well, these are savages and, you know, we need to save them, right? Um, Moana completely sidesteps that by not, you know, it's set in this, you know, ancient time before there was even a you know a whisper of western contact um and one thing that's uh really beneficial about that is this is um this is a a moment of um you know navigation and and exploration it's really the most sort of glorious part of polynesian culture 
you know, when they talk about the history, you know, what their ancestors did in striking out, you know, on this vast ocean with no navigational tools mm-hmm. and basically surviving, you know, in the most perilous conditions possible and settling the, these, all of these islands and atolls, like, you know, throughout the largest ocean in the world, that that's an incredible thing. And so we do get a, a, a little bit of that uh, in flashback in this film. And Moana is, she's sort of, her, her triumph is recapturing that spirit, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so it's interesting because this is a movie set in ancient times, but the inspiration is even more ancient. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. it's like a throwback to a throwback. Um, and for me, as I said in in my piece, uh, the the montage um, set to a song called uh, "We Know the Way," just because I, I understand, you know, what that legacy means, especially to you know Pacific Islanders. At night, we name every star. We know who we are, who we are. That was an incredibly moving moment for me to see that on the big screen with that song, um, you know, with those, um, you know, Voyager canoes and, uh, you know, those Native people drawn in a very, um, you know, in a way that felt that I saw those faces and they looked familiar to me. You know, I, I teared up a bit seeing that, you know, and, and to me, that moment conveys all of the um, the good intentions and all of the sort of earnest striving that the creators of this this movie put into it. And so now we're, we'll move on to our Plus or Delta segment. And Nate, this is your first time on the show. And the Plus Delta... We talk about one thing that we feel was great in representation and one that is not so great about representation. And so my plus is we're recording this the Monday after the Thanksgiving holiday. And I was just really happy to see on my social media timeline. And I realize this contributes to my living in a, in a bubble. But I was happy to see a lot of people um, discussing the fact that, you know, it was Thanksgiving and we're thankful for these things, but also let's acknowledge the fact that Thanksgiving also has a very ugly history and the sort of rallying cries to um, acknowledge the stuff that's going on with the Dakota Access Pipeline and encouraging people to donate and to lend their support on Thanksgiving, I thought was very heartwarming. So I appreciated that. And I'm glad that I have friends who are so active and, and vocal about those things. And so... I encourage you to uh, donate if you haven't, um, if you if you want to, but you should, um, because this is a, a, it, the irony of it being Thanksgiving and in 2016 this still happening is just very sad. And for my data, it would just be the Dakota Access Pipeline happening, <laughs> um, and we'll put a link in the notes to more information on how you can help out and and also keep up to date on what's going on. And what about you, Nate? I guess this will be like very obliquely political. Um, so you were talking about Thanksgiving and, you know, one of the little pieces of, you know, the little pieces of flotsam that passed through my social media was this this clip of um, President Obama's turkey pardon, um, which is, you know, it's one of the sillier uh, parts of his job that he has 
you know, over the years taken to with a kind of goofy relish. Yeah, he has. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and the I think the the framing of this in my feed was like, oh, you know, here's here's more dad jokes, you know, from like, you know, our, our dad in chief. Mm-hmm. It is hard to believe that this is my seventh year of pardoning a turkey. Time flies, even if turkeys don't. <laughs> and as a dad, and as someone who occasionally makes really dumb jokes, um, it, it, you know, that to me is just so charming um, because he's in on the joke, but he's still making the joke. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it just, you know, once again, kind of highlights just the um, the humanity and the sort of um, the approachability and the, the kind of um, decency that we've seen in that office uh, over the last eight years. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's it's one of those one of those little grace moments that, you know, as we are approaching the end of this, you know, uh, of this administration, it's it's something that I hang on to and something that I will miss. So so that's I guess that's my my plus. That's um, a good one. <clears throat> and then also sort of obliquely political. Um, this is a story that I have not yet read, um, but I knew was coming. Um, and I can't wait to read it. Uh, I think I'll read it this afternoon. Um, a good friend of mine, Carolina Miranda, uh, is a, um, a culture reporter at the Los Angeles Times. And she has a really big story, uh, I think, in today's uh, Times, or maybe it was yesterday's and it's online today, mm-hmm. about uh, our uh, legacy of, you know, uh, Japanese-American internment um, during the Second World War. Um, she went to Manzanar and Tule Lake, um, and she did a lot of reporting. Uh, and, you know, obviously this is a story with, you know, really chilling implications uh, in our current moment. Um, and I think, you know, it's important for us to remember, uh, you know, what a travesty it was. Um, my father spent his first four years in Tule Lake camp, um, one of my aunts was born there. Mm. Um, so it's a story with a lot of personal uh, resonance for me. But I think it's one that, you know, we all should pay close attention to because, you know, history has a way of repeating itself if we're not careful. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely include a link to that article as well in the show notes. And I look forward to reading that as well. Thank you so much, Nate. Of course. And I look forward to You have to let me know what your kids think of the movie. Oh, I, yes. They're I listening will. to the, the soundtrack, though, right? Oh, yeah. 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 And, I, and singing it back. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't wait to learn the words because yeah. right now all I know is, right. and then I'm like, something about ancestors and knowing who we are. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't wait to know the rest of the words so that I'm not just singing that one part <laughs> in my head over and over. Look for the bare necessities. Simple People have often asked me, how did it feel about being the first African-American at Disney? Well, I wasn't even aware that I was an African-American. <laughs> I was another artist looking for a job. There's always rumors of black people in Disney. It's always like, no, I think there is one. And we're back. So as I've already mentioned, I'm a huge Disney nerd. But until recently, with the release of the documentary Floyd Norman, An Animated Life, from which you just heard a clip, I had somehow been completely oblivious to the fact that there was a Black animator who worked at the studio as early as the 1950s. 
I just assumed, given the time period, that no such thing would have ever occurred while Walt Disney himself was still alive. But it did, and a few months ago, I got the chance to interview Floyd. Floyd had a unique experience as a black kid in the 40s and 50s, having grown up in Santa Barbara, California, which was relatively integrated and progressive for its time. It's there that a teacher of his noticed his frequent doodling in class and recommended that he assist his friend, a comic book artist, with his work. And a life of animation began, eventually leading him to the Disney Studios. I was finally, I was I was eventually hired in 1956. I had made an early visit in 1953, and the, the Disney Studio gave me some good advice. They said, "Kid, go to school and learn how to be an artist, and then come back and apply for that job." Floyd is now 81 and still sharp as ever. We discussed, of course, what it was like working for the studio in those days as well as ageism and how he feels about Walt Disney's reputation as a racist and sexist. Hello, Floyd. It's an honor to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. <laughs> when it comes to sort of your background and that upbringing that you had, it, it, it I definitely gave you a different perspective of the world than I think a lot of other black people oh, yeah. had. A totally different a totally uh, different perspective, say, from a black kid who might have been raised in Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia who had to deal with uh, Jim Crow, who had to deal with the, the civil rights issues in the American South. I didn't have to deal with any of that. So I came to, to Disney with a totally different perspective. I, I didn't think anything about the color of my skin. People would often ask me, were you breaking down barriers? You were the Jackie Robinson of animation. And I said, no, I was simply another artist looking for a job. I didn't bring any racial baggage with me to the Disney studio. And thankfully, it wasn't an issue. Do you think, though, that, you know, just even if you weren't necessarily uh, outwardly political in, in that way, do you think that just the mere presence, your mere presence being there helped sort of ease the way for, for more black animators to come? Well, I never gave it any thought any more than my colleagues, uh, Rick Gonzalez, who was a Latino animator, or Stan Chin, who was an Asian animator. I don't think any of us gave any thought to how we were affecting uh, the studio or America socially. You mm -hmm. know, we were, just, we were just kids trying to break into the business. So maybe our presence might have. But, but keep in mind that the Disney studio employed uh, Latinos and Asians as far back as the 1930s. So we kids coming into the studio in the 1950s, we're not doing anything that hadn't already been done years, years earlier. I mean, I guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, or actually I'd like to know, but were those, were those people of color before you, were they animators or were they sort of in the I don't want to call them the lower rungs, but there there is a hierarchy within the the business, and and it seems like you you being there as an animator is a bigger step or a more progressive step. Yeah, well, you know, uh, the few uh, people of color who were employed at the Disney Studio at that time, and keep in mind we're talking about the early fifties. They generally worked in areas as uh, gardening, uh, food service, uh, janitorial. Right. But, you know, you would have found that throughout most of America, you know, in the 1950s. That was, I don't think the Disney studio was unique in the way uh, that people were employed. Opportunities were denied to, to many. 
opportunities were denied to women. <laughs> I often remark about minorities. I said, think about the roadblocks that were there if you were a woman. Right. Uh, women, women were not allowed to be animators, you know, at that time. So, so you know, the world was changing, but the world hadn't changed that much in the 1950s. It, we would see changes up ahead, but at that time, uh, we still had a long way to go. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Did, did you ever feel like a responsibility to be or like pressure to be the representative of black people within the very white environment of Disney? None at all. Mm-hmm. And that question has been asked often. Did did I feel as though I was representing uh, African-Americans? Did I feel like I was a making a breakthrough uh, for for black people in America? Did I feel like I was inspiring young black people to become Disney artists? I I never gave any thought to any of those things any more than a white person would think, am I, am I breaking ground for white people? Well, I guess, I guess to, I guess my, I I mean it more in the sense of when you're, you know, when you're a one and not an other, but when you are the only one and everyone else around you is, is, is white or, or, not they're all the same i am just curious as to whether you felt any pressure from them as if you know to to them you are supposed to represent Mm -hmm. all people i I think i see what you're saying but Mm -hmm. i didn't feel that any more than i would feel in high school or college okay when when i was a kid growing up in santa barbara uh very often i was the only black kid in in class Mm. Uh, when I was a kid uh, going to Art Center College of Design, uh, oftentimes I was the only black kid in my art class at Art Center. Uh, there were probably a few guys who were maybe the, the only Latino kid or the only Asian kid. That's just the way it was. That's what it was like being a minority at that time. You actually got used to it. Mm. There is one moment uh, in the in the documentary briefly where you mentioned that there was a little bit of trouble or there's a little bit of uh, dissent within some of the animators and Ward Kimball, one of the original old nine men, he stood up for you. What yeah. were, what well, sort of interactions were there? It was, it was a very brief uh, incident and I tend not to uh, mention it because it was such a rare incident. In this one incident back in the 1960s, I was going to possibly take a job in a different department and I was denied that job, not because I didn't qualify for it, but because one of or one or two of the artists in that department did not want a black person working side by side with them. Hmm. They were they were probably from the deep south where there was always a separation of the races, you know, and there was always, you know, a degree of racism if, if you, you know, if you grew up in that environment. So these gentlemen did not want a black person in their department. Well, I didn't want to, I didn't particularly want to be in their department anyway. So it's kind of like, okay, fine. You know, if that's the way you feel about it, uh, I don't really care. Uh, Your, your issues are your problem, not my problem. And I don't, I don't hold the Disney studio responsible for that, nor do I hold Walt Disney particularly who was a very okay guy when it came to uh, issues of uh, color and ethnicity. So that's why I tend not to talk about this, because if one person or two people have a hang-up, that shouldn't tar the entire organization. Mm-hmm. And, and I, wouldn't, I would never want the Disney studio to be re- referred to as racist 
just because we had a couple of hardheads who hadn't gotten over their own personal problems. Well, I would love to talk a little bit more about Walt in particular and sort of the the perception that is out there. Uh, mm-hmm. Specifically within the documentary, there is uh, there is a moment when you when it brings up Meryl Streep's comments about yeah. uh, Walt Disney that she gave during I think it was during a an award it was, show. It was and yeah, it was doing it was Oscar time, and uh, Emma Thompson had been nominated for Best Actress for Saving Mr. Banks. Right, which is uh, about the yeah. making of Mary Poppins, and uh, exactly. Emma Thompson plays the author P.L. Travers, and exactly. and Meryl Streep said. And I quote, Disney, who brought joy arguably to billions of people, was perhaps or had some racist proclivities. He formed and supported an anti-Semitic industry lobby, and he was certainly, on the evidence of his company's policies, a gender bigot. Now, you responded on your blog by saying that Walt isn't perfect, and you threw threw out the... uh, the facts that he did later have women working in higher positions. And in addition to not just you working there, there are also many, as you mentioned earlier, many people of color. Uh, And in the blog, you mentioned Tyrus Wong, who is a Chinese American animator of Bambi. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you think, and this, I guess this kind of goes back to me being (laughs) shamefully unaware of your presence. Do you think that if more people were aware that there were exceptions to the rule or the, the what we all perceive as Disney being, that Disney's reputation now would not be so damaged? You know, I don't feel Walt's reputation has been damaged, uh, except by people making comments who never even met the man. Mm. So, you know, and, and, and that's what really uh, annoys me when I get people saying things about Walt Disney and they've never, never even met met the man. I had the opportunity to not only work with him, but to be here and observe his behavior over a 10-year period and, and to get to know older artists who work with him, who, who go back even further. One of the things about Walt Disney, he, he, was a, uh, he never looked at himself as a perfect man. He, he drank too much. I'm, I, he certainly smoked too much, no doubt about that. Mm. But he was a man who was very fair, and, and, and uh, he was uh, a great boss. Uh, he he employed many Jewish artists and writers. Uh, his label as anti anti semite is totally bogus, because he he employed many uh, Jewish Jewish uh, artists. Not a lot of black artists, simply because very few black artists, if any, ever even applied for a job at the Disney Studio. How can you hire black artists if none apply? They first of all have to apply for a job, and sadly, none did, or very few did. When it comes to women, uh, look at America in the 1930s and 40s when there were very few job opportunities for women. Walt Disney uh, opened up jobs for women at his studio because women were very good at doing inking and painting. Walt was just being practical when he hired women to do that particular job and gave opportunities for a lot of women who later moved on into other positions of authority at the Disney studio. So he was hardly a gender bigot. He just represented basically what American business was like in the 1930s and 40s, where women, you just didn't see a lot of women executives. You saw a lot of women who were secretaries. You saw a lot of women doing other jobs, but they weren't in uh, senior management. But that was America at that time. Yeah, I mean, I I do feel as though... There, one of the reasons why Disney gets 
bears so much of I, maybe the brunt of of these accusations is is part of it is that he he is I mean when we think of Disney we often think yeah. of children we think of the oh, yeah. the the influence it has on children and mm-hmm. you, you know we we there are p- plenty of movies you can sort of point to that yeah. that have yeah. some very not great caricatures whether you look at Dumbo the the crows uh, the the jive talking crows uh you have I love those crows <laughs> <laughs> Well I I, I, know, I know I know the guys who animated those crows they were they were friends of mine yeah. You know, and, and I tell people this, that uh, I said the furthest thing on these guys' minds were to uh, present negative images of black people. I said they're cartoonists. They were they're entertainers. They were having fun and they admired black performers of the 1930s and 40s. And they were just doing an homage to to a lot of the, you know, you can call them jive talking uh, entertainers and performers. But they were doing they were just having fun. They were not racist. They were friends of mine, and they were just uh, doing what entertainers do, and that is make people laugh and smile. Hmm. I guess it feels like the studio did not do as much to promote or to let people know that different people were working on these movies people like yourself and women. Um, and on the one hand, you obviously you don't want to feel like a token, like you don't want to feel yeah. like they're t- trotting you out. But on the yeah. other hand, it feels so like so often that people of color and women are erased from history. And and yeah. and there there's that new movie coming out. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's called Hidden Figures. It stars Raji P. Henson, Octavia Spencer, and they play... It's based on a true story about black female mathematicians who helped NASA... Oh, yes, yes, ...execute right. Apollo yeah, 11. Yeah. yeah, very true. And yeah. It, it just... Uh, I don't know. I, do you think that Disney, the studio... And I know you per se, you didn't think of yourself as the black animator, but no, you did, no. but you did have a sort of, and this is a sort of somewhat humorous, but also sad part of the documentary is yeah. we see you going back and forth with, with Disney over the years, you're, you're fired several times and then you come back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, do you, do you feel as though Disney sort of downplayed your existence in the early no. days? No, no, I do not. Keep in mind that, that what went on behind the scenes at most movie studios, unless you were a movie star, you, you, you were not aware, especially back in the 1930s and 40s, you, you didn't really know who worked behind the scenes of motion pictures. You might have known the actors, of course, and you might have known the producer and director. But generally, screenwriters weren't that well-known, and art directors weren't that well-known, and and cinematographers weren't that well-known. But the, the public just didn't really care about what went on behind the scenes. They cared about who was the star of the movie. Is it uh, Clark Gable? Is it, is it uh, you know, Ida Lupino? And so, that's, and so animation was the same thing. Nobody cared about who the animators were. No one knew who they were. Somehow animation was kind of magic that appeared on the screen and it was brought to us by Walt Disney. So Walt Disney wasn't necessarily trying to hide the talent. It's just that the talent had a very low profile during that time. Now, all of that began to change, you know, later years when we we began to know cartoons were made by Chuck Jones and Tex Avery and names were, were known. But it was many, many years where even as a kid and, and who was a fan of animation, I had no idea who made those films, who drew these films. You just didn't know. And you had no way of finding out who they were because we didn't have the kind of information systems that would even point us to a 
animation artists. So whether he was white or black, you simply didn't know their existence. Uh, so people didn't know I was at Disney. People didn't know that a lot of white artists were at Disney either because there was no way of knowing. So it's not as though we were all hidden away. It was just not something the public had any real interest in. Mm-hmm. And so after Walt died, uh, you left the company to form your own company. Uh, yes, I did. Vignette right, Films. Right. You yes. started that with one one of your partners and and um, and friends, who's also yeah. in the movie, Leo Sullivan, who's also another Leo Sullivan. black right, animator. Yeah. Now, sure. so this was a production company that made films about black history, and you did you animated the original Fat Albert special. You also designed the Soul Train logo, which. All of this is very, very different subject matter and a different target audience than when you're working with Disney. What compelled you to take your career in this direction? <laughs> Simply employment. <laughs> we had we had no agenda. We had no social agenda. Uh, my partners and I formed a production company because we wanted to make movies. We wanted to do whatever we could to get into the film business. And people often, once again, look at us as pioneers who were out Uh, trying to change society. No, we were trying to pay our rent. We were trying to keep our phones turned on. We would take any job that came our way. Uh, We had no social agenda. We were filmmakers. uh, And most filmmakers just want to make films. We want to make movies. That's what we do. So it so happened that we did black history films because there was a need for black history films. Schools needed this uh, material. So it was an opportunity for us to jump in and produce films that were needed. Once again, it was just a, a means to an end. How do we survive? How do we stay alive? We'll make films on, on African-American history because there's a market for those films. Uh, we did Soul Train because uh, we got a call from Don Cornelius, who needed a logo for his TV show. We heard that Bill Cosby was developing Fat Albert, so we contacted Mr. Cosby to say, hey, we have an idea on how your character c- could be brought to the screen using animation. So a lot of what we did was just simply uh, film producers uh, looking for a job and um not trying to make any, uh, you know, we weren't trying to change America socially. We were just Hollywood filmmakers doing what we do, and that is producing uh, entertainment. And it was as simple as that. So you didn't feel any sort of obligation to, quote unquote, give back to the black community with these films? Well, you know, it, it was it was a way of giving back in that our presence might have inspired some young black filmmakers to do what we were doing, but we didn't go into it with an agenda to in any way affect the African-American community. We didn't shoot the Watts riot because we were trying to affect, we were trying to record history. It was as simple as that. People asked, why did you go into Watts to photograph the Watts riot? I said, because it was history being made in the streets of Los Angeles. So we did it because we were filmmakers And we had no black agenda. We weren't trying to make America more, you know, socially conscious. We were filmmakers doing what we do, and that is doing our job. And so I think a lot of times people tend to uh, put some kind of, uh, you know, that we were trying to push for, for social change. 
Well, maybe we weren't that progressive. Maybe we weren't that idealistic. We were just doing what we do, and that is we're storytellers, we're filmmakers. This is what we do for a living. Mm -hmm. So what film that you've worked on are you most proud of? I love the fact that I was able to work with the old man on on the Jungle Book. I was able to work with Walt Disney on his last film. Now it's like this, little britches. All you gotta do is... Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your stress. And that I mean was a, a very special time. Hmm. I would love to pivot a little bit just to what I think you, I don't think you call it this, but it, it seems like for you at least, ageism is the sort of last frontier of discrimination. It's yeah. the thing that we pay the least attention to in yeah. terms of social <laughs> justice. And, right, and right. so your your story is basically that at 65, once, once you turned 65, Disney said they no longer needed your services, even though you were still very active and, and sure. working. And, yeah. you know, you, you say in the film, uh, quote unquote, you never became the big shot looking at the boards. So you think that might that might be why you didn't move up and become a director or a producer of of animated mm. films. But then you say after that you you weren't necessarily on the right track, career track. Do you I, I don't know, I sort of got the sense that you were uneasy about wanting to be that guy. No, I think what I was speaking of, I had uh, aspirations when I was younger. I really wanted to do great things. So I was saying that I had dreams, uh, bigger dreams, and I wanted to I wanted to take my career uh, a lot further. Now, a lot of people say, Floyd, you've had a, a successful career. You've done great stuff. And, 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 and why aren't you satisfied? Well, it's not that I'm dissatisfied. It's just that I had bigger plans. I wanted to go further. I wanted, I had a lot of projects and ideas and things that I wanted to do. And I never quite got there. Did you and, want to, and, did you want to pitch your own ideas and, and create your own Oh, films? good heavens, yes. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, anybody who's in this business, they want to make their own movies. They want to tell their own stories. They they want to uh, get out there and do great things, as Walt Disney wanted to do great things. So that's what I was speaking to. I didn't feel I didn't I, I didn't feel I was a failure in any way. I just felt that I had uh, I had big dreams, and I didn't realize all of my dreams. So, do you think though that had you realize your dreams that you might not have been cut off at 65 by the Disney company if you had just gotten higher higher up on the chain no I don't think so I I think that probably would have happened regardless Uh, sadly that's just the thing in corporate America where workers who reach a certain age are encouraged for one reason or another to to move on to older workers tend to give way to younger workers uh, sometimes there are economic reasons. Sometimes it's just uh, uh, an, uh, an unwritten studio policy. Uh, as I look at companies today, I see a, a lot of young kids. And I remember when I was a kid starting out, I remember coming to companies and seeing a lot of old timers. You know, you'd see balding, fat old men and, and women with gray hair. I don't see that anymore. I, I go to companies today and it looks like a daycare center because <laughs> everybody's so young. <laughs> so I, I think that's just that's just been a, a social change in America where our, our workforce 
is becoming younger and younger, and our older workers are encouraged to to retire. You're actually speaking to me now from the Disney Studios, and yes, I am. You, right, you're still you're still at it at 81. You are still doing your thing. Still. Yeah, still actively engaged. Uh, not an employee, I mind you. I have to re- remind people, I am not plo- I'm not employed by the Walt Disney Company, mm-hmm. but I am working on a Disney project as I've worked on many Disney projects uh, over the years here. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, I always find things to keep me busy. Mm-hmm. And uh, currently, I am working on a project that's going to be announced next year, and everybody's very excited about it. Aside from that project, what do you find most exciting about where animation is today? Oh, I find it's exciting because it's a a business that's continuing to grow and change. Today, there are studios not only all over the country, but all over the world. Back in the old days, back when I came into business, you saw a new animated film maybe every seven years. Today, we see seven new films every year. There's so many. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. So the business is bigger than ever. That means there are more opportunities than ever for young people who want to come into this business. So it's a very exciting time. And I tell young people, boy, I wish I was 21 all over again, because if coming into animation now, if I was a kid, it would be so exciting because like the sky's the limit. There's no limit to what you can do with our new tools, with the new technology. It's a very exciting time to be in animation, and I envy all the young kids who are just entering this wonderful business. Mm. And my final question for you would be, if you can think back, uh, however far you have to think yeah. back, but can you, <laughs> can you remember or recall the first time when you were watching something, a movie, a TV show, the when you felt as though you saw yourself on screen, you saw something that oh, related yeah. to you. Oh, you bet. You bet. My mother took me to see Walt Disney's Dumbo when I was like six years old. And I saw that stork on the screen delivering uh, little baby uh, uh, circus animals to, to all the, the, the mothers in the circus. And that voice was Sterling Holloway. A happy birthday, a dear, a dear, a dear me, what's his name? Jumbo Junior. Oh, Jumbo Junior, huh? Happy the, birthday, the voice actor, Sterling Holloway. Jumbo and I was like six years old happy watching the movie with my mom in Santa Barbara. Well, some years later, I was in recording stage A at the Disney studio with Sterling Holloway, the very same actor who I had heard on the screen when I was a child. And here I was with him recording the, uh, the dialogue for the Jungle Book. And that's when I realized that, yeah, dreams do come true. A kid's dream, sitting with his mother in Santa Barbara watching Dumbo. And here I am at the Disney studio years later, working with the very same actor, the very same actor whose voice I'd heard on the screen when I was a little kid. Only now I was making an animated Disney movie, and I realized that uh, that dream I had as a child had indeed come true. It came full circle. (laughs) It did. It did indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Floyd, for joining me. It was great talking to you, and I'm so glad that 
people know who you are now. And, and well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was that was never my intention. I, you know, that was I was I wasn't trying to be noticed. I was just trying to, you know, create fun entertainment. But if I can provide uh, some in- inspiration to a kid out there who's maybe thinking about coming into this business, and they say, "Well, boy, if he can do it, maybe I can do it too." Uh, that's that's a good feeling, knowing that kind of thing can happen. Well, again, yeah. thank you so much. And uh, good luck with this secret project. I'm looking forward to uh, <laughs> hearing you about it. You will find out. Yeah, you will find out next year, 2017. Yeah. Take care, Floyd. Thank you. Thank you. That's a wrap. It was an absolute pleasure to have both Nate and Floyd on to discuss representation within the Disney realm. You can find links to the things we talked about, including Nate's slate piece about Moana, in the show notes. And the documentary, Floyd, Norman, and Animated Life, is currently streaming on both Netflix and Amazon. As always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts. Please, please, please keep rating us on iTunes. We really, really appreciate your support. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verlin Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. The music you're hearing right now is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. Mm-hmm.